Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends and feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, leader of the Green Party of Canada, Elizabeth May, joins us and outlines her platform beyond green. Maxime Bernier told he can now participate in the federal election debate. How will that change things, or will it? And federal parties are being warned of efforts by six foreign countries to try to influence our election. Who does that benefit, or does it? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Commentary there is uh, is there. In regard to the shooting in Mississauga on Saturday evening, this happening at the apartment complex, um, in Mississauga, uh, kids outside with their parents at an ice cream truck and all of a sudden gunfire erupts and, and not just gunfire, semi-automatic gunfire, uh, starts. And, and, and to me, this reminded me of the video in Las Vegas where the guy parks himself up in the hotel room and just starts firing at the crowd of country music, uh, concert goers below. All you hear is a rat a tat a tat a tat a tat a tat That's what this was like. Over a hundred shell casings on the ground. That's not a gang fight. That's urban terrorism. Uh, and, and frightening. And I'm, I'm, I'm scared that with each occurrence like this that happens, we become more numb to it all. Feel free to weigh in on it. Love to hear from you. Facebook and Twitter, uh, the podcast edition of the commentary is there. All right. The election campaign is in full swing. Of course, October 21st, when we uh, all head to the polls to vote for a new federal leader. Joining us now, Elizabeth May, leader of the Green Party of Canada, and she is with us now. Elizabeth, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks. And Scott, I want to thank you for that editorial moment. Your words just now were very powerful. Thank you very much. As a leader, how do you wrap your head? We'll start with this. As a world leader, how do you, or a leader of a country or a province or a party or a municipality, what have you, how do you wrap your head around something like this? Because obviously it's a complex issue. Yeah. Well, I mean, basic, there's no more important job for government than to make its citizens feel secure and be secure. So we need to do a whole lot more. Uh, we've had we've you know we've been compared to the United States. You look at the fatalities from gun crime in the United States; it's off the charts, right? But it's very very concerning to any Canadian when we have shootings, when we have uh, incidents in which innocent people are killed for, uh, gee, uh, the kind of irrationality behind mowing people down with a van in Toronto or shootings in malls, anything like this shakes our sense of security as a people. I think in terms of gun crime, what the, what the Green Party is calling for, by the way, is to set up a program for buyback of illegal weapons. No questions asked, just turn them in. We'd like to have them. We'd like to get rid of them. Uh, we, we really need to focus our CBSA, our, our Canadian Border Services, far more on stopping the smuggling of illegal weapons and drugs and much less on going around trying to find people who are living lives of where they pose no threat to anyone, but their citizenship papers may not be completely up to snuff. And frankly, we've seen a lot of CBSA efforts to find people who are not a threat and deport them. And I have to think that with limited resources, it would be better to put CBSA on a relentless effort to make sure that we stop the smuggling of guns into Canada. 
All right, uh, let's move on. Talk about the success of the Green Party this election. Your uh, so far this uh, last election, uh, you were disappointed, thinking of stepping down as the leader of the Green Party. How have things How have things changed since the last election for the Green Party? Well, it's changed dramatically. So there's a smile on my face. Yeah, I. I always think about succession. I'm not, you know, the, the, there's um, the idea of clinging to power is kind of counterintuitive to your leader of the Green Party. But the goal here is to improve democracy and to, and the election of more Greens across Canada. We now have official opposition status in Prince Edward Island, obviously a big breakthrough to have the leader of the Green Party of Ontario in Queen's Park. Three Green MLAs, a, a really important caucus in New Brunswick, and in British Columbia, the balance of power, which the Greens in, New Br- in British Columbia call the balance of responsibility, really big strides. And then, of course, capping it off with the election of a second Green, Paul Manley from Nanaimo Ladysmith in May. So that sense of momentum, fortunes have changed. We're polling in many parts of the country as the third choice. Of, I'm very, you know, it's humbling to say it out loud, but in polls, people say I'm the most ethical leader. So it's feeling on the ground everywhere we go across this country, people are excited because they're voting green for the first time and they actually feel confident and positive about their choice. How do you translate that into votes? Because you've certainly captured a lot of people's attention. How do you explain the recent success? Is it that the green or the environmental issue has become top of mind? It's become fashionable now, or is it that Canadians are looking for a third option and the NDP's not 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 suffice? I also think people are looking for their first and second option, and they're not very happy with the way they've been served by the parties they traditionally support. So last night in Guelph, for an example, we had a huge rally. And just before I spoke, they had a Guelph supporter of Steve Dick, who's running for Greens in Guelph, who said, I've been a lifetime conservative, and this is why I'm voting Green. And the next speaker was, I've been a lifetime New Democrat, and then the next speaker, I was a liberal. But these are the reasons I'm voting Green now. And they were a nice combination of dissatisfaction with their old choices, and real excitement about a party you can believe in with a wide range of policies that'll make a difference. So we're, you know, it, it would be pretty far-fetched to suggest that, that we were shooting for um, a majority government. Yeah. But it's not that far-fetched to say Canadians really want better, more honest, more ethical government, and Greens are offering that for sure. Uh, many have said uh, between the Greens, the Liberals, the NDP, they could split the vote on the left. Uh, uh, we've chatted with the, the leader in Guelph, and he said, I, you know, I don't want to be uh, labeled as left, right. A lot of people are trying to figure out where the party is beyond the Green issue. Uh, yeah. So how would you describe that? Your slogan, not uh, left, uh, sorry, not uh, left, not right, uh, forward together. How do you explain that? Well, I do want to say one more thing about splitting the vote on the left. We we just saw the decision by the Debates Commission to include Maxime Bernier and the People's Party. Yep. The vote is being split on the right, too. So this election is a unique, maybe unique opportunity for Canadians to vote for what you want. If you like NDP policies, vote NDP. If you like liberal policies, vote liberal. If you like green policies, don't be scared out of voting green. Because the vote between Andrew Scheer and Maxime Bernier is splitting the party that they both were competing to lead. 
We have to remember, Maxime Bernier came in a very close second to Andrew Scheer. They were virtually neck and neck for their conservative party leadership. And as a result, the party is now split in two. So we, we're very unlikely to see the same kind of fear-based pressure that, you know, supporting the Greens would somehow help Harper, which was a motif in the 2015 election. And frankly, it's why I went back alone to Parliament, was we had a number of races which were very close, where it was between the NDP and the Greens and or between the Liberals and the Greens. And there was no chance of a conservative winning. But that messaging is very powerful, fear-based messaging. If you vote Green, you'll be helping Harper was powerful in 2015. It's not the same message now because the conservatives are split on the right. But how do we explain ourselves as a party? Uh, we're basically focused on the tools that will work from anybody's toolkit. So frankly, if you look at our platform, we are calling for massive expansion of our social safety net. We're calling for universal pharmacare without exception. We're calling for a dental care for low-income Canadians, for child care for every Canadian, for abolishing tuition and eliminating student debt, and for guaranteed livable income. So people can look at that and say, well, okay, well, so that's a party on the left. On the other hand, we're, we've, we're, our platform is still being costed by the Parliamentary Budget Office, but we're quite confident that we will be able to arrive at balanced budgets on the same kind of time frame as the Conservatives. So does that make us a right-wing party? No, we just we believe in fiscal responsibility, but we also want social justice. And, of course, we're in a climate emergency, so it's not an environmental issue. It's a public safety issue. Back to where we started, the first job of government is to assure public safety and security. We're in a situation now where our children's safety and security is directly threatened by burning fossil fuels. Fortunately, there are a lot of alternatives. And, and by the way, Greens want to have more steel produced out of Hamilton. We want to be able to lay train tracks and do the work that needs to be done to improve our transportation sector. So we're, we're not either of those things, really. We, we use, we're sometimes to be perceived as left wing, sometimes to be perceived as right wing, but not on the issues like, for instance, we would never compromise on a woman's right to a safe legal abortion. Hmm. Does that make us left wing or just supporting human rights? It, it, these are questions that I'll leave for someone else to, to answer. But we, we want Canadians from every part of the political spectrum to know that they, they have a home in the Green Party. They should look at our platform and think it over. Uh, you uh, yesterday came out with the rest of your platform, as you just mentioned, Pharmacare and uh, and tuition and such, uh, that you said it hasn't been costed yet, but how do you plan to pay for it? I mean, many will say, well, it's easy to sit and say that when you, you, know, you know you're not going to form government. How do you plan on paying well, I, for this? I, I would like to form government. I'll make I that clear. Yes. I, think, I, think the, I think if the leaders of the parties who are running this election, and I, I don't want to sound arrogant about this, Scott, but I'm better qualified to be prime minister than the other leaders. That doesn't mean that I think it's about to happen. But I've had a lot of government experience, and I want to make sure we deliver a better, more respectful parliament for Canadians. But our programs have been costed. The difficulty is... We, we sent all our numbers in starting in June, and we're very grateful that the Parliamentary Budget Office, which is, of course, an, uh, an arm of the government of Canada within the uh, parliamentary structure, so they're nonpartisan, they've been reviewing all of our planks and all of our revenue at line items, and they're almost done. So we didn't want to hold up the platform for the additional maybe one week 
before we get all of the information. It's been trickling in for us for months. So I'm quite confident that our sources of revenue will work. Uh, for instance, increasing the tax on large transnational corporations, increasing the tax on our commercial banks, bringing that from 15% to 21%. We're also going to apply a small 0.2% uh, uh, tax on every financial transaction. We're closing some of the big corporate loopholes that only benefit the super rich, like stock option loopholes and changes to capital gains and removing the tax write-offs that corporations get for entertainment, for food, and for their own exclusive box <laughs> for watching uh, hockey and baseball. They are you worried? Are you clients. are you worried that will stymie business? That that's what the right would say. Well, you know, the right wing had its chance, and I, I was very fond of Jim Flaherty, our former minister of finance. But his policy was to cut corporate taxation by saying he was giving a break to what was framed as the quote unquote job creators. Now, what large corporations did with their tax cuts wasn't to reinvest in Canada. Investment has remained quite flat. These large corporations have essentially hoarded the cash. Uh, um, the former uh, president of the Bank of, uh, Bank of Canada, Mark Carney, described this as um, basically the dead money. It's not being used. And that cash hoarding of dead money means that these guys haven't been job creators. They've kept cash out of our economy when we need it for investment. So if they're not going to invest in it for the benefit of the Canadian economy, we can return tax rates not to their, not by any means to the taxation. This doesn't go back to what it was in the year 2004 or 2006, but it does return it to roughly where it was before Harper took office. And at that point, I, I think it's only fair to say the people of Canada need revenue and we need investment. We need a massive infrastructure project to improve our uh, electricity grid from, from coast to coast to coast. We need investments to be able to ensure pharmacare and low-income dental and eliminating tuition. So we have found places to seek revenue. And the, the increase in taxation for large transnational corporations, I want to underline, not for small business. We leave the small business tax rate where it is. We supported cutting it to 9%. Leave it there. Because small business, by the way, if you want to know the job creators, yeah. it's small business. They employ more people in Canada than the big companies ever did. All right. Uh, in the Justin Trudeau government campaigned uh, last election under sunny ways. From that, it's turned to... Uh, the world is coming to an end. We're in a climate crisis here. And unless you pay more, uh, we're all going to die. So how do we transition from the progress that we've made into uh, a greener, renewable environment? How do we do this without walking society backwards? Well, here's the thing. I, I don't I, w I wouldn't want to associate myself at all with that sort of with I know you were kind of piecing around the edges, and I don't think liberals either would want to say that this is fear-mongering. But the, the liberal climate promises have not added up to action. I know they had better intentions, perhaps. I don't want to tar them with the same brush as Stephen Harper, but the reality is that the target for carbon reduction that was put in place by Stephen Harper is the same target now. That, to me, is shocking. So here we are, uh, far after the Liberals took office. They have not improved 
Canada's target to be consistent with what we signed on to, which was then the Liberals, it was Catherine McKenna in Paris, who did the right thing and said Canada will join the world. We must ensure that global average temperature increase not go above a red line in the atmosphere at 1.5 degrees, because after that, we could be unleashing uh, what's called runaway global warming, self-accelerating, unstoppable levels of climate warming that threaten the survival of human civilization. But we have time to stop that, but not if we ignore it and not if we leave our target at the same place Stephen Harper said it, which, again, by the way, liberal plans don't yet amount to meeting the Harper target, much less the one that's necessary, which is exactly twice as much. So how do we do that? We do it in a way which, number one, ensures workers that they will not they should not feel insecure. So these are the principles of just transition. Um, the president of the Canadian Labor Congress, Hassan Youssef, co-chaired a process on this. We adopt all their recommendations. It's very important that workers and the communities that are dependent on the fossil fuel sector are fully engaged in the process of, you know, you have, you have transferable skills. Where do we transfer them? We have a lot of work to be done, and this will actually be the economic stimulus that our economy really needs because we need massive investment in improving our electricity grid and massive investment in making sure every single building in Canada ceases to be wasteful when it comes to energy but becomes an energy miser. And that way also, by the way, the carrying costs of our buildings, our homes, our institutions drop dramatically when we no longer are wasting so much energy through inefficiency. So we're quite confident that the economic opportunities that open up when we stop wasting energy, when we stop wasting billions of dollars every year subsidizing fossil fuels and apply that money to, to doing what needs to be done to promote a green, renewable electricity grid. And then I think you were starting from the point of view of as if everybody has to pay for this with carbon taxes. Greens don't think that a carbon price should be kept by government at all. Every single Canadian should re receive a check for their fair share of the pollution charges that are taken from the larger polluters so that every single Canadian gets some relief when there's an increase of price at the pump. Last question, Elizabeth May from the Green Party. What is stopping Canadians from voting green this election? Nothing. That's what the good news is. <laughs> no, but you were saying, like, ob obviously, Elizabeth, your, your party has captured a great deal of attention, certainly moving yeah. policy, and, and will no doubt change the face of this federal election. What's stopping people from going all the way and marking an X next to the Green Party? Well, I hope that with more information, I'm, well, I'll be in the leaders' debate. Well, not in the one in TVA, not the, not the one in the commercial French station, but I'll be in the English and the French debate. How do you feel about that? That's a little odd, considering you and the Prime Minister are pretty much toe-to-toe -to -toe on environmental issues. How do you feel about not being included in that French-language debate? Oh, I think it's outrageous. Uh, it's absolutely outrageous that the commercial network TVA has chosen to include the NDP, which at this point, I mean, the NDP has every right to be there, obviously, but we're polling ahead of them in Quebec. What justification could there possibly be for excluding the Green Party hmm. with strong candidates throughout Quebec and to include every other party that the Debates Commission says meets the requirements to be in the debate? 
but not the Green Party. Yeah. Uh, I think it's, and by the way, I mean, every, you know, I am the only woman party leader, and it is important. I mean, Justin Trudeau said this in 2015, that he, he thought the Greens should be in the debate, if for no other reason than he wanted his little girl to see that a woman could be prime minister. And I don't think he's changed his mind about what his little girl should see. I just wonder why he's showing up at a debate where I'm not invited. And I think it's, I, it, I hope that by the time the TVR debate happens, they will have reconsidered. But back to your question, I think for a lot of Canadians, nothing's stopping them from voting green. They just haven't really considered it yet. And the group of voters I hope to reach out to the most are the people who in the last election didn't vote at all. So that's a very large proportion of Canadians, uh, about 30% of Canadians, more than 30%, didn't vote at all in the last election. And I think it's important for democracy to be healthy that every single Canadian with the right to vote start thinking about it now. If you haven't voted in the last, you've never voted. If you haven't voted in the last 10 years, if you got disgusted with politicians altogether, you know, and I can say I don't blame you, but if you did, think about this election and how important it is. And then have a look at our platforms and consider, okay, I'm going to send a message to all those parties that have let me down, that are ethical shambles, that, that are handmaidens to corporate Canada. I am going to get out and vote green, if nothing else, but to send a message to the parties that have let me down. Elizabeth May has been with us, leader of the Green Party. Elizabeth, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thanks, Scott. I hope I talk to you again during the writ. You never know. Yes, for sure. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. We were just talking with Elizabeth May, leader of the Green Party. What an election campaign this is turning out to be. I think this is going to be the hardest to predict uh, simply because of the options. Uh, We were talking about how uh, the left vote may be split with the Greens, although the Greens would say we're not left, we're not right. Uh, but people categorize that because their number one issue is the environment. Uh, the Greens, the Liberals, uh, the NDP, can the Liberals outgreen the Greens? All shooting for the left vote. Will they split the vote? Well, now, as Elizabeth May pointed out, the right may be split as well as Maxime Bernier, who was once with the Conservative Party, has split off and, uh, and created the People's Party of Canada. He, Maxime Bernier, has now been told he can participate in the leaders' debate. Why now? Let's bring in Peter uh, Wollstonecroft, Associate Professor, University of Waterloo, and he is with us now. Peter, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. Good afternoon to you. Why this now? Well, he met the criteria. Uh, there's some suggestion that they haven't concluded the process, but he's uh, crossed the threshold as it now stands, and so he's a legitimate participant in the debates. So what threshold has he crossed now? Well, Th- that I, that I guess he didn't have at the beginning of this discussion. Uh, w- did he have, uh, were there identifiable writings in which he had, or his candidates had a fighting chance to win? And... He identified some writings, and the commission did some polling and said, whoa, he's getting 10, 15, maybe 20% of the vote. And uh, so it is possible that those people can win. And, uh, and yes, that would be a big surge for them to win, but I remind people that in uh, 2011, the NDP came from nothing, in, particularly in Quebec, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like from 4% of the vote to 40% of the vote, 45% of the vote. And uh, so that's possible that he could have a surge in his favor. So he met the test 
Right. It was set. So, the, and this is happening now because as the campaign starts, polling numbers are showing that his party is gaining traction. A little bit, a little upward, and you know, at one time he was at one percent. Now he's around three percent, uh, and so that's that's showing some strength. He, he's able to nominate, uh, or will nominate, in almost all of the ridings. So that was a pretty good organizational achievement. Mm-hmm. I think they have a money problem, but uh, you know, he he has met the hurdles as they've been put in front of him. So, in your opinion, is should he be there? I mean, does he qualify? Well, I didn't set the criteria, and, you know, <laughs> I, I, I resent the fact that the block is there because yeah. they only campaign in one, uh, yeah. in one part of the country. They're not a national aspirant. I think many would feel the same way you do yeah. on that point. And so I say, well, it's a bit ironic that a party which has national aspirations uh, has a national campaign, a national leader, Mm-hmm. Uh, would be denied a place on the on the in the debate, but a party that is a clearly a one province party and is only interested in that province and pretends to be uh, important enough to occur or to appear in a national debate it would just it would just stink to high heaven to have uh, Max and his party not there and to have the block there. Uh, a former colleague in the Conservative Party said it's no surprise that Justin Trudeau's hand-picked debate panel used a liberal-friendly pollster who attacks Andrew Scheer to ultimately justify Bernier's attendance at the debate. Uh, your thoughts on that line? Well, you know, that's, that, that's sometimes said. I have never said that. And uh, I would say there's much more to it than that. And as far as I can tell, uh, the commission, uh, so they say, they used a variety of pollsters and they bought a number of posters into the process, and they're satisfied that within the limitations of surveys, doing those kinds of public opinion polls, that the numbers they produced and the writings that they identified, and, and Max had to say this writing or that writing. Mm-hmm. In fact, just incidentally, I was called in my writing and wanted to know if I was going to vote for the, uh, the candidate for the People's Party of Canada. So they were canvassing around trying to find friendly writings. Mm. So they put up five, and, and their numbers look interesting enough that you could see that perhaps they're going to win. Uh, so Jug, sorry, go I, ahead. I trust the pollsters, uh, and I don't believe it, the process was biased. And, and uh, there were other pollsters and Mr. Graves and his outfit involved. Um, your thoughts on the NDP not wanting this? Jugmeet Singh spoke out against Bernier being there. Well, there are two happy people here. Max Bernier is happy because he's on the national stage. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people who, who know nothing of him uh, will say, oh, here's a guy with a different kind of message than the rest of them. And, and Singh is happy as hell because, uh, excuse my French, uh, he's, he's really happy because he can go into uh, uh, the highest rhetorical heights to yeah. attack Max Bernier and say, You're, you are a hateful person, your platform is, is disgusting, uh, there's a threat to our well-being, so on, so on, so on. And that's going to raise his stock. So that creates creates a bit of a problem for Elizabeth May. Can she match mm. thing on that? So and conservatives, uh, however, will be unhappy because every vote that uh, to Max gets will, all likelihood, ninety nine percent of the time will come from conservative tending voters rather than liberals or greens or new democrats uh you sort of touched on this how does this all affect the debate uh leaders and uh, the liberals ndp green they say will split the left does this now split the right how does this present well, how does this play out and, yeah. and, and he draws away and if 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 we didn't have the people's party of canada uh, i would say the, the conservatives instead of being at 35 percent 
they'd be at 36.5%, 37%. They wouldn't get all those people. And so this hurts them, and that's why they're so angry, because Mm -hmm. they had assumed he wasn't going to be there. It's going to be interesting. We have uh, all these party leaders and four moderators. It's it's going to be like one of those uh, uh, wrestling matches. (laughs) And and like you said, even more difficult because the bloc is there just speaking to one province, which, you know, is bizarre. Could this be an opportunity for Scheer to say, hey, we're not as wacky as these guys are? Uh, In other words, uh, the the, the liberals, the NDP, the Greens will be attacking Bernier and not attacking uh, Scheer. Yeah, I think there's opportunities for everybody. And it'll be a matter of how adroit they are, how forceful they are, uh, and, and, and how they handle Bernier. He's clearly a problem in as much as his message is all these people want to grow the state, raise taxes, fiddle around with your tax monies. I want to make things simpler. I want more free enterprise. I want more of a market economy. That's where I'm going. My message is much different. And he's also got... Uh, um, a more restrictive view on immigration than the other parties have. So for people who are feeling, let's put it this way, somewhat out of sorts about what's happening to Canada, uh, they may feel find him appealing. And up to this point, he hasn't been getting their attention. How much attention will the other leaders, the opposition, give Bernier, do you think? Well, there you go. If, uh, if you were an advisor to, to uh, Justin Trudeau, uh, would your advice be attack him or ignore him? Uh, yeah, I, I guess I would. But like, would they wait? Do 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 the candidates want to focus their attention on the front runners, or do they want to point at someone like a Bernier? Well, I, I think uh, Mr. Singh and Elizabeth May are fighting with each other for third place. I think that's pretty clear. Uh, mm-hmm. Mr. Singh is very happy, as I said earlier, to be uh, dumping on Maxine Bernier. Trudeau wants wants the NDP uh, not to do well. Because the weaker the NDP is, the better is for is for the Liberals. He wants to have a contest with Andrew Scheer, and he wants to tie uh, and Andrew Scheer to Doug Ford. Yes, that was my next question. Like there you, you know, Tr- Trudeau's target is Andrew Scheer. How does Maxime Bernier in that debate derail that? Or or, or again, and, and Andrew Scheer can turn. Can he just turn and say, "Well, no, you're speaking of the People's Party, not the Conservative Party." Because, you know, because the left and the liberals have been trying to paint all of the conservatives with one brush, all believing, you know, the extreme, uh, you know, from the center conservative right to the extreme. Now there is an extreme conservative to point to. Yeah. And and so Andrew Scheer would say, look, I'm a moderate person. I'm a pragmatic person. I believe in equality. I believe in fair treatment. I believe in, in delivering programs that make life better for people. Uh, these other people do not. Look at them when they're fighting each other. I can s- well see him doing that. And I will say, I've been watching him a lot in the last uh, 24 hours. He's been very uh, accessible to the media. Uh, and I think he's feeling more and more comfortable as a party leader in the position that he's in. So, yeah, and he and I, I think you're quite right. He can say, you know, the, the real extreme person here is, is Mr. Bernier. It's not me. I'm a moderate sure. kind of conservative and, and I, I'm looking for the interests of all Canadians, not just a small slice of them. And especially when the Prime Minister, even just this yesterday, again, bringing up Doug Ford and saying, hey, you know, if you vote for Andrew Scheer, you're going to get Doug Ford. Does this, again, allow Scheer to separate himself from the extreme? 
Well, we'll see how verbally adroit he is. Uh, it's quite clear Trudeau is, is, is running against the ho- uh, an unholy trinity. Stephen Harper from the past, <laughs> Doug Ford from Ontario, and Andrew Scheer from someplace in Saskatchewan. Uh, the polls virtually, uh, the, the polls say that uh, from a popular vote standpoint that the first two parties are in a dead heat with the Liberals and the Conservatives uh, and the NDP and the Greens uh, fighting for third. Uh, what does this that say at this stage of the game? Well, you know, I, I look at where I live, Waterloo Region. In 2011, it was all blue. Uh, in 2015, it was all red, four ridings red, one blue, by which the Conservatives won by 500 votes. Right now, it could be three Liberals, two Conservatives, or three Conservatives, two Liberals. I don't see the NDP or the Greens, so they're making a lot of noise in Kitchener Centre. But and, and which party form wins the mo, uh, more seats than the other will be determined by urban areas, like where you are, uh, where I am, and do the Liberals carry a majority of the seats in that region? So if in, my, in Waterloo region, do they win seat, three seats or four? Uh, if it's a conservative minority or majority, they have to win three or four seats in where I live. And, and a similar kind of calculation would be in London, in, in the Hamilton area, the suburbs of Toronto, and so on and so on. Uh, so it's very much up in the air. I talk to people. Uh, people see me coming, they duck in the bushes because they know they get some questions. And I, I, I ask, I don't want to know what, which party you voted for last time. I just want to know, do you think you'll change your vote? Mm. Most of the time, like 50%, 60% of the time, I am really thinking of changing my vote. Really? Uh, talk about the fight for third and the NDP and the Green, because the Greens certainly seem to be sucking all of the oxygen out of the room. That being said, will that translate into seats? I mean, there's certainly a lot of hype around the Greens. Uh, that being said, will you know, and even if they double their seat count, it sounds great, but it's still only a couple of seats. Do they really have what it takes? Do they have the depth to really infiltrate into NDP territory and, and steal well, some serious seats. Yeah, uh, and, and they will take, I believe, all the modeling I've seen suggests they're going to win uh, four to six seats on Vancouver Island, and those are NDP losses, so that will really hurt the NDP. Um, however, when I get outside of Vancouver Island, it's hard for me to see where the Greens are going to win. Even if you give them Kitchener Center, which would be a remarkable victory on their part, and there's, there was a remarkable amount of energy being being spent there by the Greens. Uh, though they hold the provincial seat of Guelph, I've seen nothing that would suggest that they are going to repeat that federally. And then I read accounts, I talk to people, they say, well, you're making a lot of noise in New Brunswick, uh, maybe PI. And then when I look at the polls and, and we'll, I just, it's hard to, for me to see that happening. I don't see it happening elsewhere in Ontario. I don't see it happening in, 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 uh, in Quebec. And so when this topic comes up, I say, you know, a lot of people will say, I'm very concerned about the climate and climate change and what's happening. However, I, 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 I vote in a different way. And the test case is in Wolseley in the Manitoba election a week ago, where they put an enormous amount of, of time and treasure trying to win that seat, which they did very well in the last election three years ago, they did poorer this time than they did last time, despite the enormous effort uh, expended on behalf of the Green Party candidate in that writing. So people are, I think, are at the place where they say, yeah, I'm really worried about 
what's happening, icebergs and fires and all this stuff, but does it really direct my vote? Most of the time, I don't think so. Um, despite considering all of the talk of climate change, the Liberals certainly trying to outgreen the Greens, why are Canadians not just, and, and again, we're assuming that things will stay the status quo moving forward, and who knows, you know, maybe the NDP will you know, will will capture the magic and, and somehow translate this into a slide of some sort, or a, a wave of some sort. But, you know, despite th- them doing politics differently, Elizabeth May certainly identified as one of the more uh, more attractive leaders as far as uh, ability to leader, uh, to, as, far, as far as leadership abilities and, and personality and likability and such. Uh, Elizabeth May fares well. Obviously, the green uh, message, the environment in fashion right now. What is stopping people from voting green? Well, uh, there, there are a number of things. Uh, they're not too sure how it's going to affect their lives if you put in the eat green policies at, so at that level. So uh, when people tell me they're thinking of voting green, but what's holding them back often is not is that they say, well, if I don't, if I vote green, then that means I'm not either voting liberal or conservative. So some of them don't want liberals to win. Some of them don't want conservatives to win. So say, if I don't vote for one of my party that I prefer of the liberals or conservatives, then in fact I'm helping the other the party I don't want. So there's that kind of strategizing going all the time. And I say to people, you've got to vote what you believe mm. rather than what you fear because you don't know what's going to happen. Mm. So so let's just say if you, if you were... Uh, um, yeah, citizen, you want to vote. You don't like the conservatives. Um, you don't want them to win. So therefore, you would vote liberal, but you really want to vote green. And your fear is, if I vote green, then that's one less vote for the liberals and maybe the conservatives will win. And I know one writing where that's very much an issue on people's minds. Do you think because of the way this is all shaking down in the, in, in the competition between first and fourth, this is going to make this election even harder to predict? Yeah, I would say so. Uh, and 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 when I listen to the politicians uh, and the platforms, I don't see anything that that would be we uh, the shining city on the hill, which is kind of an American phrase. Mm-hmm. I don't see anything that's the big aspiration, the big national vision. Uh, Trudeau is pretty good at some of that stuff, but he's got four years in office, and so he's got some barnacles on his heels and. Uh, you know, he's, he's got a record to answer for, and people have various kinds of negativities that they can throw at him. So it's hard for him to be the big vision guy. Uh, and so therefore, I think we sort of have a regionalized election of grievances, uh, various discontents, uh, people torn this way or that way. Uh, I think, you know, in many ways, it's, it's what's happening in your community kind of election. And uh, at the outset, you were talking about the, the violence and the shootings and these outrageous shootings in Mississauga. You know, yeah, I, I think that's an issue in southern Ontario. I don't think that's an issue that, uh, that rings in western Canada. Hmm. People would go, what? Uh, what are you talking about? I don't know anything about that. Um, yeah, so, so yeah, you've got to remember it's a big country, and, and so I think right now you have lots of localized, which can mean southern Ontario, kinds of concerns rather than national concerns that's driving the agenda and the party's fortunes one way or another. Peter Wollstonecroft has been with us, Associate Professor, University of Waterloo. Peter, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're welcome. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. uh, Federal parties are being warned by efforts by six foreign countries to influence the election. How do they do this? What process is used? How do they influence what you do? And who benefits from this? Or does anybody benefit? What parties are targeted? Uh, let's bring in Phil Gursky, President and CEO, Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. He is with us now. Phil, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, Scott. How you doing? I'm doing well. And you? Very well, thank you. Uh, I just wanted to ask you one question uh, that is totally unrelated to what we're talking about, but it was the question uh, that we posed in the commentary today. And as someone who is involved in threat and risk consulting, what is your reaction when you see what happened in Mississauga the uh, last weekend in regard to over 100 rounds being shot by a, uh, uh, two gangs uh, going at each other over a rap video, apparently? Uh, over 100 shots fired with semi-automatic handguns. Uh, this seems that it has gone from a gang fight to terrorism-like activity. What are your thoughts when we appear to grow numb to this? Well, I'd be really careful about going down the terrorism road, Scott, because that's really specific in terms of legislation. And from my view, as someone who worked at CSIS and works in this area for many, many years, terrorism has to be an act of violence carried out for some kind of underlying ideological purpose, be it religious, political, or whatever. This is just a gangland shooting, a bunch of gangs that are angry at each other, pissed off, whatever, they want to get back at somebody. This is clearly not terrorism. I think the problem here is people read terrorism as that, oh, I'm terrified, or, you know, they're spreading terror through Mississauga. And there's no question, this is a terrifying incident, but there's no way it qualifies under terrorism in my books. What it points to is, you know, our lack of control over, over guns, the abil- inability to sort of keep a clamp down on gangs and the GTA. And those, those, are the, uh, those are other issues, and they're important issues, but I wouldn't want to bring it down the terrorism pathway because that just complicates things unnecessarily. Uh, the result is the same. Many would say that the culture that be, is being bred here is very much an, idealism, an, ideo- an, an ideology, even though it is not an organized religion. I, I, again, I would really, I would push back on that. I mean, it, I mean, look at ideology. There's probably as many meanings as there are people, but you know, to me, it has to be a little more concrete, a little more developed than just one gang has targeted another. And there certainly is a gang ethos, if you will, or a gang way of doing things. But I wouldn't call it an ideology. It doesn't mean it's you know that's serious. In fact, you could, I mean, it's quite clear in a country like Canada gang violence is a gazillion times more serious than terrorist violence. Just count the numbers, right? Count the shootings, count the deaths. Yeah. But no, I, I don't think it's an ideology, personally. I mean, others would differ, but that's my stance. All right, Phil, uh, let's move on to uh, espionage and infiltrating others' elections. Uh, federal parties being warned of efforts by six foreign countries to influence elections. Who is trying to influence our election? Good question. And, you know, obviously a lot of this information would be in the hands of CSIS or at CSE, Communication Security Establishment, where I used to work before I joined CSIS, the uh, Signals Intelligence Organization, perhaps the RCMP. And these are foreign states that, for whatever reason, think there's a benefit to them to actually gain some kind of influence. And I think the obvious culprits, I mean, the ones you and I and probably my cat knows about, would be like Russia and China and stuff like that. But um, an issue name that's been coming up a lot lately is India. And so what this points to is something a little bit different, and this is maybe targeting the diasporas here in Canada, so the large South Asian population, the large East Asian Chinese population, to try to influence them in who they want to cast their votes for. So 
That's foreign meddling. And if you look at the CSIS Act, which determines what CSIS can and cannot do, that's right in the, in the, in the, in the threat section under, under Section 2 of the Act. This is foreign interference in our affairs, and, it, and it's serious. How do you police this? How do you enforce this? How do you prove this? Well, you've got to get some kind of collection, either be either a human source or an agent, or you've got some kind of intercept, whether it's domestic, which would be the case of CSIS, the RCMP, or foreign, which would be the case of CSC. You've got some kind of intelligence that points to the fact that these are what people are doing, and, and as a result, you're able to make your case. The problem is that it's intelligence. You're not going to share it with the bad guys, right? That's, that's the challenge right there. Um, and then, you know, it's, it's a matter of, having a strong enough case to make, and then if you have to do a diplomatic demarche or some kind of pressure on these states saying, look, you guys shouldn't be doing this to us because we can do it to you, that's a bit of sort of diplomatic tit for tat. Sorry, a bus is going by. It's really loud here. Um, it, it, it's hard to prove in a, in, a, in a court of public opinion because the information is so sensitive, so it has to be handled kind of behind the scenes, if you know what I mean. Is everybody doing it to each other? Sorry, Scott, I can't hear a word you're saying. Just give me one second. There's a bus that's going by, and I can't hear a bloody thing. Is everybody, yeah, Sorry. Is everybody doing it to each other? I think so. I, well, I don't know that we do, because we're the good guys, right? We're the white hats. We're the, <laughs> well, we're the, we're the, well we're that's the it. That's my point, Phil. Can we complain if we're doing the same thing? Not really. I think there's sort of a nudge, nudge, wink, wink that goes on in a lot of this kind of stuff where there's no public acknowledgement that we're kind of all playing the same game. I don't think we do it to the same extent some of these other parties do. I could be wrong. I've been out of the business for a couple of years now. And if we were doing it, I probably couldn't tell you anyway. But, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of stuff that goes on where it's kind of the same old, same old. So, you know, you know what do they say? That's old saying, the, the, the lady does protest too much. <laughs> we're kind of guilty of that sometimes, too. Mm. Who is hurt the most by this? Uh, does it benefit certain parties more than others? I don't think so. I think they're all being targeted. I think the bottom line here, Scott, is what's happening is Canadians are being unduly influenced in terms of how they view political parties, how they view their platforms, how they view what's happening in Canada, and, and they're being kind of misled to consider casting their ballot that's in the interest of another state and not where we want to take Canada as the country. That's the danger and that's the damage to me is that they're not actually casting a vote freely and fairly because they've got misinformation or disinformation that leads them to believe they should do it otherwise. Is it an economic disadvantage or a political disadvantage? It's really hard to say. It's just when you cast your ballot in October, you should do so with the full knowledge. You've done your research. You know who you're going to vote for, and not because you've been misled by some foreign state into saying that, you know, vote for Phil, not Scott, because Phil's a great guy and Scott's not. Is it balanced interference between all political stripes? Does anybody have an advantage here or a disadvantage? I, I don't think so. That's a really good question, and I'd, I'd have to think about that a bit more, but off the top of my head, I would say no. Um, let's face it, the, you know, the, the differences in platforms are really pretty minor here in Canada. Um, you know, either slightly left of center or slightly right of center. There's no far left and far right really in this country. So I don't think that the parties could be distinguished from that level. I just think what it does is it, under, it undermines, the, undermines the system. It undermines the integrity of our voting system. And I think that's what bothers people the most is that there's a sense of a foreign actor that's introducing information that kind of removes that sense that it's all free and fair and above board. And that's the thing we should worry about. Not so much whether, whether Andrew Scheer or Justin Trudeau or Jagmeet Singh benefits more than the other. I don't think that's the issue here. How do they influence? You, you talked about before you go to the polls uh, October 21st, make sure you've done your research, you know what you, who you want to vote for and the reasons why. How do these actors influence? What do voters look for? 
Well, it's, it's basically it's misinformation or disinformation. And I'll tell you, Scott, as somebody that worked in Intel for more than three decades, you're only as good as the accuracy of the information you're collecting, the intelligence. And the way you do that is you look at it, uh, you think, you know, does it pass the smell test? And more importantly, can you corroborate that information independently? If you can't corroborate it, if it's a one-source, one-time thing, your spidey sense should go off and say, hmm, I wonder if this is true or not. Maybe it's, you know, maybe this is false information. So if something is truly out there, on the, you know, out in left field, I can't believe I'm reading this, chances are it's not true because someone's planted there. Hmm. This is why you, you check multiple sources. In other words, you act like a good intelligence agent. You get you know, information from, from source A, then you ask sources B, C, and D, and if they all say the same thing, hmm. you can say, hmm, there's probably more, more accuracy to that. But if it's, if it's a single source and it smells, it probably isn't true. Is this influence effective? It Does it work? Or are we becoming more savvy? Are we getting smarter at this? Wow, what a great question. <laughs> I, I sincerely hope, Scott, that as a species we're getting smarter, but sometimes when I wake up in the morning I have those doubts. Um, is it effective? I think people are being deceived. They are being duped. There certainly have been well-attested and well-documented cases of interference in recent elections in France, in the UK, in the United States. Did it, did it, was it of an extent where it, where it actually swayed the election? I'm not sure that's been shown definitively, but there's no question that people are believing things. And they're putting it as part and parcel of, of what they think, right? So I have 100 things that I believe in, and if 10 of them are from disinformation or misinformation, that's a significant percentage. And so what weight did, do you give those things before you cast your ballot? I don't know. But chances are it has, it has some kind of influence on your final decision. And if it does, then, yeah, the interference has, has been absolutely effective. Uh, what role do world leaders play in this? Uh, many would say uh, the likes of Donald Trump are creating divisiveness where people become more skeptical about this sort of thing. How has the current environment changed this? Well, you, at the end of the day, you want mature, responsible leaders at the helm. And I don't, I don't want to piss off maybe some people in your listenership, but I don't think the president south of the border is a mature, responsible individual. And a lot of what he says is patently false. So he's certainly not helping the matter. Does he have a greater responsibility? I would answer yes. But at the end of the day, you and I are responsible for our decisions. You and I are responsible for doing our homework, checking our sources, determining if the information is correct, and then acting based on what we think of that information. So whatever Donald Trump or Justin Trudeau or whoever says whatever, you know, at the end of the day, you and I are the ones that must take responsibility for what we do in life. And so I guess at the bottom line to me, Scott, is the ultimate responsibility lies with us, not with our leaders. How concerned are you about this interference? As you said, you know, uh, Canadians may not realize this, but as you look at the the top political parties, there really isn't that much difference between one to the other, a great difference in other parts of the world. So does this matter as much to us? It matters from principle perspective at a minimum. If we really don't think that our electoral process is free and fair and that it has not been influenced by foreign parties that have no bloody business poking their noses into our affairs, then, then the answer is that it's serious. In terms of what it will it mean at the end of the day, really hard to tell. Let's face it, let's, let's not, let's not uh, get bigger than our britches here, Scott. We're Canada, right? We're a middle power at best. We're not one of the people that decides what happens in the world for the most part. So I, w- I would go really careful on trying to say it's going to have a, a huge impact. But, you know, look, at voting rates are already plummeting across the Western world. And if more and more people say, why do I bother because my vote doesn't count, or worse, who knows if my vote even means anything because of this foreign interference, then that undermines the entire system that we're based on. And then, and then you get the point, well, why bother having elections? Well, so that would be that would be the worst case scenario to me. I don't think we're there yet. So, you know, let's just kind of keep an, an eye on it. 
let's hope that CSIS and the RCMP and CSC and their partners can identify this stuff and neutralize it to the best of our ability. But to me, this is not a game changer, at least, at least not yet. Not until we see where it actually does play the sort of the trump card, no pun intended, hmm. uh, in swaying an election. But I haven't seen that uh, to any, any definitive way. Technology obviously advancing every single day. This problem's not going away. If anything, it will become more extensive. How will we view this 10 years from now? Wow. Will we be just smarter consumers and be able to identify it? Or uh, will will everything be driven by remote control? How much confidence do you have in the human race, Scott? (laughs) (laughs) We've been around as a species for a million years, and some days I wake up optimistic. Some days I wake up and think, oh, my God, where are we going with all this? I just like to think that as consumers of information, we've never had access to more information than we have right now. That is a fact. And we're going to have access to more and more information as we go down the road. It's a matter of figuring out how, do you, how much do you trust your information? What sources do you go to? How, how accurate are those sources? How reliable are those sources? And I think as we get more and more information thrown at us on our iPads and on our cell phones and all kinds of other stuff, it becomes harder and harder to make that distinction. But I think that if we're educated mature, decent people who care about this stuff, we're going to have to put more effort in to determine the origins and the effectiveness of the information that's being shown to us. And if we don't do that, then we deserve to be duped. We deserve to be fooled. Is so, this, yeah, it's probably going to get worse. Uh, there's a technology gap here because of where we are in society and, and blending with technology. Does that mean that this is a generational problem? Our kids, you know, obviously if you want something fixed, you just take it to your kid and say, hey, what's going on here? Uh, will this be a problem for the next generation or will they be smarter than we are technologically? And this, this won't be a problem for them. That's a really good point you make, Scott, because I've seen some, some, some data that has indicated that one of the groups that gets fooled the most is actually the old farts like me. Yeah. So, the, you know, the, the late 50s and up who aren't as familiar with technology as perhaps the younger generations. And, yes, I do get my kids to fix my cell phone. It doesn't work. And my laptop. Maybe these kids, it becomes second nature to them. But just because they understand the technology, doesn't mean they understand how to do source verification. Right. There's all kinds of stuff yeah. that they're consuming and passing on and liking and repeating and retweeting and all that kind of stuff. Are they asking the hard questions as to whether or not this is good or because it gets 38,000 likes on Facebook, I'm going to pass it on too and thereby be part of the problem. So I'm not sure the technology problem is the issue. I think it comes back to how do you determine that the information that you consume, that you share and that you support is actually good information. And that's a problem that's been around well, since the dawn of time and it's not going to go away. Uh, does this make us just more cynical about politics? Like, my goodness, I'm swamped here. How do we make a dent? Can we get any more cynical about politics? Yeah, exactly. Good point. Um, like I said, we, we've seen that voting patterns and voting rates have been, have been shrinking in the Western world. So whether that's due to cynicism or I'm too busy or, you know what, who cares who's in power? They all, they're all the same anyway, which I guess is cynical in nature. I don't know if it makes it any, any, any better or any worse. You know, when it comes to whether or not I should vote, the, the lesson that I draw is, I, and, I, and I, I grew up in the Cold War, and, I, and my, I worked in intelligence during the Cold War, and I knew what a lot of countries did not have the, the basic liberty to do, which is choose their own system of governance. And so when I, when I vote, and I vote, you know, I vote in all the elections, whether or not I think the candidates stink or not, this is a privilege that we have. We have, we have built this from the ground up. We didn't always have this. Other countries today don't have it. You don't get a lot of freedom in China or North Korea, for that matter. And so I think we should be voting, cynicism or not. I think this is an important freedom we have. And if we don't safeguard it, 
and it gets lost for whatever reason, then we just have ourselves to blame. We've all seen what happened with the last election in the United States and allegations of Russian uh, interference and, and, and so on and so forth and, and how those came to fruition and, the, and the, all the reports and, and commissions that have been since then. Do you see this making as much of a dent here in Canada in the next election? Foreign, inter- foreign interference. Yeah, I don't. For the simple matter, as I said before, we're, we're not the states, right? We're not the states. We're not the United Kingdom. We're not the European Union. We're a middling power who sometimes thinks we're more important than we are. And I'm not dismissing Canada and what its place in the world. I'm very proud of what Canada you know, does on the world stage. But, you know, we're not one of the big boys. And let's not pretend that we are, which means how much attention, how much effort are the nefarious actors, the bad guys, going to put into a country like Canada versus the United Kingdom, like for the Brexit vote, for example, or European Union elections, or United States, or whatever. So I'd be, I'd be hard-pressed to say it's going to be the factor for this election. doesn't mean it's not going to happen, because they, they do recognize there's some benefit. Otherwise, they wouldn't do it, right? They, they're not doing these things for, for fun. They're doing it because they think they can, they can affect the results some way. But I would be very surprised to see it has near, it, it's being done nearly to the same extent that we saw in 2016 in the United States. I just, I just can't get there from here. Phil Gursky has been with us, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. Phil, as always, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Have a good one. You too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.